Good evening, everyone. Hey, if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and open that up right now. We'll be in Mark chapter one tonight. Uh, Mark chapter one is we're here in week two of our teaching series on the gospel of Mark. But before we jump into Mark's gospel tonight, I wanna take a moment to update you uh, on some important news uh, that I think maybe some of you have tuned in to listen for and are excited to hear uh, on our update about our return to campus here for young adults ministry. So I wanna spend um, just a moment talking to you about um, young adults ministry here and our return to campus. And so uh, most of you know uh, that we are now, or maybe you haven't actually done on the math here. We are in week 15, uh, the 15th week here tonight, the 15th Thursday uh, of us meeting completely online. That goes all the way back to March 12th, which was a week before the governor put out his stay-at-home order on March, uh, March 19th. Uh, this has been 15 weeks of us meeting exclusively online for young adults ministry. And here is what I am standing here to tell you tonight, that unless things change, and Lord willing that this continues to be the case, this would be our 15th and final week of only meeting online for Young Adults Ministry. Well, what I'm here to tell you tonight um, is that we have been meeting 15 weeks online only, and our goal is that next week, next week, young adults will return to campus next Thursday here on campus. So I wanna to try to help you understand this a little bit. Uh, we're gonna be meeting here on campus next Thursday uh, for young adults um, here at 7 p.m. Uh, I'm gonna explain why we're doing 7 p.m. in just a moment, but we're gonna meet at 7 p.m., not 8 p.m. here on campus for young adults ministry. Uh, I know I'm speaking to a lot of you um, that are not young adults, but you've been listening in and Thursday night's just been a blessing to your experience throughout this. Uh, we are so glad you're tuning in. I wanna make it clear though, um, those who are coming to campus, uh, we're looking for people who are 18 to 30 years old. And so young adults are welcome to join us on campus. Those of you who have just been joining us on live stream, uh, I'm gonna speak to that in a moment because we're gonna continue to live stream um, to those of you that are watching that aren't able to join us here on campus. So next Thursday, a week from tonight, 7 p.m., we're gonna be meeting here on campus. Uh, I do want you to know that due to COVID-19 regulations, uh, pre-registration is required. And so you are gonna have to let us know that you're coming to this. Um, that registration is a 60 second or less thing. It is not gonna take you a lot of time at all. Um, the way you do that is in a, uh, it's an entirely online form. You can do it on your phone, in fact, right now. Easiest way is just text the word church to this number here, 818-405-8445. Just the word church with nothing else in it. It will send you back a reply with a form. You click on that form, you register. Again, it'll take you 60 seconds or less. You can register to come next week. That is a requirement for coming with us. You can do that tonight. You can do that anytime this week. You can can do that on your drive to church next week, but we want you to sign up, register, that lets us know you're coming and helps us prepare um, for what we need to do. Or you can go to calvarywestlake.org slash youngadults and you can fill out the form there. So you can either text church or go to our webpage for young adults and you will be able to sign up. I want you to know next week as you prepare for it that our meeting will be outside on the cafe patio. Uh, if you don't know where that is, you'll just kind of come on to campus and we'll direct you that way anyway. But but it will be an outdoor meeting. That's the way we can best socially distance and adhere to state and local guidelines. And so we'll be outside. The chairs will be spread out. Uh, I do want you to be aware of this, young adults. This applies to us as well. Um, masks are mandatory for this. Uh, we're going to be practicing social distancing, hand washing, sanitizers, different protocols to keep people happy uh, or keep people healthy, pardon me. And I understand that maybe some of you are uncomfortable with masks. It's not your favorite thing to wear, and I understand that. 
But if the choice is we get to meet on campus and the trade-off is we wear a mask, we're going to wear a mask so that we can gather and worship together. So again, masks are going to be mandatory. If you don't come with one, we'll have one for you uh, if you don't have access to one. If you are sick, meaning if you have symptoms of COVID-19, we're going to ask that you stay home. And at this point, um, all of us know what those symptoms are, what that looks like. If you even suspect that you might have that, we're going to ask you to go ahead and stay home and not join us next Thursday night. Uh, And then finally, um, the service will be live streamed. And so um, if you are not able to join us because you are in a high risk category or you're not able to join us because you're not actually a young adult but you've been watching and enjoying this we're going to continue to live stream but here's the important thing you need to hear this uh, we've been live streaming on all the different platforms Facebook YouTube church online the church app we've been doing all of those platforms starting next week young adults when we move outside our, our technology out there is only going to allow us to stream to one platform and that platform is going to be YouTube and so if you're watching on some other platform Facebook or Church Online or the app, we're gonna be on YouTube only starting next week, but we will be live streaming the service. We're looking forward to it. YA is back next week, June 25th. That's Thursday, June 25th, a week from tonight. You can sign up now. If you're watching online right now, our moderators have put that link into the chat. You can be one of the first people to sign up to join us back on campus. 15 weeks of being online only. And God has blessed us and people have grown and we've heard reports of people coming to Jesus and we've heard reports of people growing in Christ and we know God is on the move even when we can't see it and even when we can't gather. But if you're anything like me, you have been excited and looking forward to the day when we get to gather and now we have that day on our calendar. It is seven days away. Next Thursday night, we will be gathered outside meeting for the first time in 15 weeks, for the first time since early March. I can't wait to do it. I'm looking forward to next week. It's going to be a blessing. Go ahead and sign up. Let us know you're coming so we can prepare for a remarkable night. And moving forward, we will be meeting here on campus, young adult ministries, 7 p.m., not 8 p.m. on Thursday night. So I want to do this before we jump into God's word tonight. I want to take a moment to pray, to thank God for the season um, that Lord willing is behind us of being online only and to pray for the season to come where we're outside and there's new things and we're adjusting to a new normal. I want to pray that in this transition, the Holy Spirit of God, like we just sang about, would rest on us, would fill us, would meet us, and ultimately would grow us to be more like Jesus. Would you pray with me? God, thanks for tonight, and thank you, God, for the capacity um, to gather once again on campus. God, we broke from that and our usual rhythm um, to protect our neighbor, to look after health, to make sure we were doing our part in all of this to um, keep people healthy and keep people safe. God, I pray we would do the same even when we gather. God, I pray against sickness. I pray against anyone getting ill. Uh, But more importantly, God, as we step forward into this, I pray that our regathering would make us more like Jesus. That has been our prayer since the very beginning, that everything that happens in all that is going on this year would make us more like your son, Jesus Christ. And so as we gather, God, I pray you would be honored. I pray you would be glorified. I pray for the individual listening right now who can't gather with us next Thursday for whatever reason. I pray that you would continue to minister to their hearts as they watch online, knowing um, that that is something you are doing all along. And so I pray for that individual. But for those who can gather, I pray that next Thursday night is an encouragement to to all of us as we gather together and lift up the name of your son, Jesus. We pray it in his name, amen. 
Well, once again, we're here, uh, in a series on the Gospel of Mark. Last week, we began the Gospel of Mark in the first chapter. We didn't make it very far, but if you remember last week, we really just covered the first verse, and it was this one. In Mark chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, The beginning of the good news of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. And we spent all last week really trying to unpack what was really a title statement for the entire Gospel of Mark. Mark is the shortest gospel. Mark is the quickest gospel. It's full of action and movement and intensity. And then here's what we see in verse two. It jumps right in. It says this. It says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight the paths for him. So here's what we see here. We see this prophecy that's coming out of Isaiah and what he's doing is he's bringing together this Old Testament sense that there was someone coming, there was someone coming that would prepare the way for the Messiah. Someone coming who would herald that God is about to do a new thing, a spectacular thing, a wonderful thing in our very midst. And I wanna point out to you tonight a word that's gonna come up a few times in the part of Mark that we're studying in this first chapter today because I want you to see how thematic and central it is to this part of the story. And it's this word you'll see right here. It's the word wilderness. Now, wilderness becomes the context for the stories we're about to read today. We're about to see John the Baptist in the wilderness. We're about to see Jesus baptized in the wilderness. We're about to see Jesus tempted by the devil in the wilderness. And I think when Mark is writing this, he's intentionally using this word right at the beginning, this word wilderness, so that we would understand the context for what Jesus is about to experience, so we would understand the context of where God is at work. Now, when I say wilderness, and you hear the word wilderness, you and those of us who live here in Southern California, and really those of us who live um, in America, tend to think of wilderness, and we think of this. When I Googled the word wilderness, this picture was the first one that came up. You think of the Sierra Nevada mountains, you think of pine trees, you think of this lush um, forest and this river running through it. That's what I think of when I think wilderness. If my friends told me I was going to camp in the wilderness, I would imagine a scene just like this. But here's the problem. Mark wasn't writing this in Southern California. Mark wasn't writing this in a scenario or a scene or an image like this. When Mark used the word wilderness, he had a very specific image in mind. And everyone who first heard or read or thought about Mark had that same image in mind. It wasn't this picture, it was this one. This is the image Mark had in mind. When Mark said in the wilderness, the first people to hear or listen or read the gospel of Mark would have immediately thought of this image. The image you see here is a church, and it's actually called the Church of the Temptation. The idea is it's a church built upon the very spot where Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, something we'll see in a moment. And whether or not this is the exact spot Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness is less relevant than the fact that it was certainly something that looked like this. It was dry. It was arid. If you were stuck in a place like this and it looked like this for miles and miles and miles, it would be terrifying. It would be unruly. It would be unforgiving. It would be a difficult place to find yourself in. So listen to me. 
when the gospel of Mark begins telling us that someone is preparing the way for Jesus in the wilderness, don't think of a wonderful lush forest with a stream running through it and bears walking around and campfires in the distance. That's not at all what Mark had in mind. What Mark had in mind is this kind of arid, waterless place where you do not want to be stuck. Let me put it to you this way. For Mark, the wilderness is a harsh, unforgiving, uncomfortable, unpredictable, and dangerous place. That's what the wilderness is. The the wilderness is this harsh place, and it's unforgiving. If you make a mistake, you're going to end up losing your life or being in great danger. It's uncomfortable. It's not the type of place you want to be. It's unpredictable. You don't know if it's going to be freezing cold at night or hot beyond belief, and it is dangerous. There are wild animals looking to harm you. There is sun beating down on you. There is disease. There are insects. There is pestilence. There's all of these things that could cost you your life. And here's why I actually think it's significant for us to linger on this word wilderness. I think it's important because when I look at this description of the wilderness, I recognize something that I think you'll recognize very quickly too. That 2020 as a year has been harsh, unforgiving, uncomfortable, unpredictable, and dangerous. But like this last year that we've all experienced together has been all of these things. It's been a difficult year. It's been a trying year. For for some of you, this has been your most difficult year. And then for others of you, you'll go 2020. No, 2020 has been fine. 2019 was the difficult year. And maybe for some of you, you're going 2019 was fine and 2020 has actually been all right. And maybe you don't even want to recognize this, but maybe next year will be the difficult year. And whether it's last year or this year or next year or 20 years from now, here's what we all know about life. Life can often be harsh, unforgiving, unpredictable, uncomfortable, and dangerous. And here's what I need you to see tonight as we jump into this part of the Gospel of Mark, as we jump into everything God is going to do in and through Jesus' life. We need to understand that this is the type of environment that God is meeting Jesus in. This is the type of environment that God wants to meet you in. These harsh, unpredictable, uncomfortable moments. And here's why. Because the wilderness is where the growth happens. The wilderness is where the growth happens. These uncomfortable places we get into in life, the times where life is unpredictable, the times when things feel dangerous or uncertain and we don't know our footing and we don't know what's going to happen next, those are the moments where God does his best work. I need you to look back in your life into the moments that were most comfortable, most easy, no issues, no problems. Look back on those moments and recognize that God was present, God was good, God was faithful, and yet the story in my life, the story of people in the scriptures, and likely the story of people in your life is this, that it's in the wilderness where God does his best work. It's in the wilderness where God does his growth inside of your heart. That's what I want you to see tonight. I want us to think about this war in the wilderness. I want us to think about walking by faith in the wilderness, what that meant for Jesus and what that might mean for us tonight. Here's how it continues in um, chapter one and verse four. Here's how the text goes on. It, It says this way. It says, so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all of the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John made clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes one who's more powerful than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he 
will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So what we get introduced to here in this Gospel of Mark, this very first chapter, is this individual named John. And he's called John the Baptist. Some call him John the Baptizer, so as not to get confused with the Baptist denomination. But he is the baptizer. He is John. He is the one. He's the forerunner to the Messiah. This is the one that Isaiah prophesied about, that there would come one in the wilderness, this person in this unpredictable, unsafe, uncomfortable place who comes in and announces that God is about to do a new thing through his anointed and chosen Messiah. And here's the thing I love about John the Baptist. We just read a little bit about John the Baptist's ministry. And here's what I just find so wonderful about John's life and what challenges me so deeply. Um, The only reason you've ever heard of John the Baptist is because he pointed to Jesus. The only reason you've ever heard of John the Baptist is because he made his entire life about someone else. John the Baptist, it doesn't record, it records that he's baptizing, but he's baptizing in preparation for something bigger. He's always pointing towards someone else. The remarkable thing about John the Baptist isn't what he did, it's who he pointed to. But like the whole story of John the Baptist's life is the story of a man who spent his entire existence pointing to someone greater than he was, pointing to someone who must increase so that he could decrease. And this challenges me. And it challenges me because I want to be that type of individual like John the Baptist who leaves this legacy who is known not for talking about myself and my wants and my needs and my feelings and my thoughts and my emotion and my views on everything. But what if I became the type of person who was known like John the Baptist for constantly pointing to and talking about Jesus, and what if you became that same type of person? I wanna give you just a few diagnostic questions because I think a lot of us would say, yes, I wanna be a person who talks about Jesus. I wanna be a person who's known for pointing to Jesus. I wanna be that person. Let me just give us a few questions to diagnose on our heart on this. Here's the first one. How often has Jesus come up in your conversations this past week? And I don't mean how many times have like Christian ideas come up or how many times have you even talked about Bible verses. I just mean how many times has the name of Jesus come up in your conversations this last week? Like one of the observations I'd make is it's actually pretty easy to tell someone God loves you, but when you bring Jesus loves you into the conversation, it automatically escalates because it's now pointing to a specific being in Jesus How often has Jesus come up in your conversations? Maybe here's a more specific question that is easier to answer. How often has Jesus come up in your text messages in this past week? You know how you can find this out? You go to your text messages, you go up to the search bar, you type in J-E-S-U-S, and you hit search, and you just see how many times it popped up in the past week. I did this before I preached the sermon. It did not go so well for me. It was twice and only once was I actually referencing Jesus as an encouragement or actually pointing toward him. This is what happened. Jesus, how many times, how many text messages have you sent this week? And how many times does Jesus come up? Or or let me put it this way. How often has Jesus come up on your social media in this past week? And here's the thing, I think for some of you, the answer is a bunch. Like you're constantly talking about Jesus, you're constantly pointing people toward Jesus. That's a conversation that's on your lips often. But, but I just wanna challenge you if the answer is not in this last week and not ever, like, like there's some disconnect there. Like I can't understand a Christian who would say, I wanna make my entire life about Jesus, I just don't want him to touch my Instagram. I wanna make my entire life about Jesus, just my Facebook is out of bounds for him. Like that just doesn't connect in any way. Or, or maybe here's the final question. Um, how many times has Jesus come up on your music playlist this past week? 
And again, the answer for some of you is a bunch because you just fill your heart and your mind and your ears with the sound of Jesus' name. But, but I fear that for some, you say you're a Christian and you love Jesus and you're all about him, but everything fades when it comes to the actual things of your life. Here's the point I'm trying to make. I'm not trying to heap shame upon you. I'm not trying to say do better or anything like that. What I'm trying to say is this that the type of life John the Baptist showed us and the type of life I wanna lead and the type of life as your pastor I want for you is the type of life where Jesus is actually just woven into the day-to-day parts of your existence. That you would talk about him as naturally as you would talk about the weather. That you would talk about Jesus as naturally as you'd talk about your best friend or your spouse or your mom. That he would just be woven into conversations, not in some pretentious big way where you're like, I have something to say about Jesus, but where you just kind of, you mention him, you bring him into conversation, you talk about your relationship with him like you would talk about others that you care about deeply. See, that's the legacy John the Baptist left for us. And I put these questions on screen, not to just heap shame upon someone who's listening right now, but to remind us that if we really want to live in love like Jesus, he's gotta become part of our conversations and our life. We can't say we're Christians, but then live like atheists in the way we talk to people. Like we want to actually believe that Jesus is who he says he was, Because he is. And that's the challenge that John the Baptist gives us. It goes on this way in verse nine. It continues on. It says, at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending like a dove. And a voice came from heaven and said, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. So here's what we see. We're introduced to Jesus for the first time in the Gospel of Mark here in this verse. He comes from Nazareth and Galilee. And as we continue on our teaching on the Gospel of Mark, you'll see a little more about Jesus and Nazareth and Galilee and how all of those things fit together. But what you need to see is Jesus is baptized by John and then something remarkable happens. Heaven is open. Jesus is there. The Spirit descends and a voice from heaven speaks. This is recorded in the other Gospels and we see this moment where Jesus hears the voice of God. And here is what I'd want to point out to you. I want to remind you that this moment, this scene we're watching, this moment in Jesus's life, it happened in the wilderness. It happened in this unpredictable, harsh, uncomfortable, dangerous place that Jesus was in the midst of. Like Jesus is about to go from this moment in the wilderness to being tempted by Satan. We're about to see that in just a moment. Jesus is about to experience the depth of being uncomfortable and tried and tested and unsure of what comes next. Jesus is about to experience all of that. And God the Father knows that. And so here's the fascinating thing. Here's what I just can't get over in this text. God knows what Jesus is about to go through. God knows Jesus is in the wilderness. God knows that Jesus is in a difficult and trying time. And so what does God do? Does God set off fireworks in heaven? No. Does God try to do some spectacular miracle around them? No. What does God do when Jesus is about to go through a difficult time in the desert, being tempted by Satan? God does one thing, and it's this, that God spoke. A voice from heaven speaks and says, you are my son in whom I am well pleased, my beloved, the one I love. And here's what I'd point out to you tonight, that God's word becomes more important in the wilderness. That God's word becomes more important in the wilderness. Why? 
God understands that what Jesus needs in this moment more than anything else is the voice of his father. He understands that what Jesus needs more than anything else is the authority and the comfort of God's very word. And I need to speak to someone right now who's in the midst of the wilderness right now. Life is uncomfortable. Life is uncertain. Life feels dangerous. Life, you feel insecure. You you feel like things are, you're not sure what your footing is. You're not sure what your path is forward. You're not sure how things are gonna work out for you or for your family or for our nation or for this world. If you feel uncertain right now, I need you to know that God's word is more important to you now than ever. Now is not the time to ignore God's word. Now is not the time to neglect your Bible reading. Now is not the time to turn away from the scriptures. Now is the time to double down on the Bible. When things become uncertain, when you find yourself in the wilderness, it is God's word that sustains you. It is God's word that ministers to your heart. It's God's word that you need more than ever. Here is Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. He is in the wilderness. And what does his father Father thinks he needs more than anything else in this whole world, his word, the very words of God. And you have those very words too in the very Bible you're holding on your lap right now or looking at on your phone. And now, child of God, more than ever is the time where you need God's word. Let's see how it continues in verse 12. It goes on this way. It says, at once, at once the spirit sent him out into the wilderness And I actually think this is a really interesting moment in the text because this isn't maybe what you'd expect. See, what you'd expect is that Jesus has this incredible experience with God's voice and God's word and heaven is open and a booming voice speaks down and says, you're my beloved son. But then it says this, it doesn't say, and Jesus soaked in the moment, it was so good and everything was perfect. It says at once, or in the gospel of Mark, it uses this word in some translations, immediately. He's brought into the wilderness. And I think this is actually, there's two observations I wanna try to make here. Here's the first one. Um, I I wanna try to point out that it doesn't say Jesus wandered into the wilderness. I I wanna actually point out that it says the spirit sent him into the wilderness. The word there is actually like the spirit hurled him into the wilderness. And and I wanna point out that the wilderness is not God's punishment for your sin. The moments in life where you feel uncomfortable, uncertain, unsure, unforgiving, harsh, you're just not sure where to go from here is not an indication that God is punishing you because here's Jesus, the sinless, flawless one, and he's sent into the wilderness. Like the wilderness is not a place of punishment for your sin. It is a place that God might bring you into so that you might grow to be more like his son. So that's the first observation. It's actually the spirit that sends him into the wilderness. But the second observation I'd make is this, uh, and it is the strange pattern we see in the Bible. And if you go read the Bible quickly, uh, or I'm not quickly, I'm pardon me, if you read it carefully, what you will start to see is this pattern emerge over and over and over again. And here's the way I would put it. It's that the wilderness often follows wonderful experiences with God. That oftentimes the people of God have these wonderful experiences of God's power and his presence and reassurance in their life, and immediately it's followed by the wilderness. You think of the people of God being rescued out of slavery in Egypt. They see the 10 plagues, they're rescued out of slavery. Pharaoh lets their, God's people go. They go to the Red Sea. They march through the Red Sea and God splits it. And then the Egyptian army is washed into the sea and they've just seen all of these miracles of God. What happens to them right after? They spend 40 years in the wilderness. 
Jesus is in the wilderness, and what happens is the, the, the sky is split open. God speaks to him. He says, you are my son, my beloved, in whom I am well pleased. He has this amazing experience and immediately goes into the wilderness. Think about the disciples. These disciples of Jesus Christ see Jesus die, and then they see him rise again from the grave, and they're so overwhelmed and bewildered that they actually find themselves in the upper room. They think they've seen Jesus. They think he's alive, but they actually find themselves hiding in fear. They're thrown into the wilderness, into uncertainty. Maybe you've experienced this before. You've gone to a Christian summer camp or winter camp and and you've been so filled with God's presence and God's power and you're so moved deeply uh, and there's this peak experience followed by a valley. You you go on a mission trip and your whole world is turned upside down and you come back with a sense of God's global power all over the world and then you find yourself in the wilderness. You you make a decision about how you're gonna follow Jesus and repent of your sin and, and fight after holiness and then you find yourself in the wilderness. And I guess what I'm trying to say tonight is that if you've ever found yourself in the wilderness after a wonderful experience of God, I'm here to tell you these comforting words that it's normal. It's totally, completely normal. It happened to Jesus. It happened to the nation of Israel. It happens all throughout the scripture. There's this amazing moment of God followed by a moment in the wilderness. It's Elijah on Mount Carmel followed by Elijah hiding in the desert. This is a pattern for the people of God. And here's what's so wonderful about it. It's not God punishing you, but I wonder if for some of us, it is this moment where God says, are you chasing after me or are you chasing after your experience of me? Are you chasing after me? Do you want me or or do you want the feelings that come with chasing after me? That these moments where we walk through this moment of uncertainty, unclarity, feeling like we don't know our footing going forward, those are the moments that often follow a wonderful experience with God. And so here is the word I just want to speak for some of you. Stop being surprised by the wilderness. Stop being surprised that there are moments in your life where you feel unsure, where you feel uncomfortable, where you feel insecure, where you're not sure how to move forward. And stop being surprised by it. Stop being overwhelmed. Stop being shocked by the fact that there are moments in your Christian walk and moments in your Christian faith where you're not quite sure how you ended up there and you're not quite sure how to move forward. This is a normal part of the Christian life. I want you to see how it goes on in verse 13. It says, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan and he was with the wild animals and angels attended to him. And now if you've ever read the gospel of Matthew or the gospel of Luke, you'll know that the, the, the description of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness is so much bigger. Actually here in this text, this is it. This is the whole description of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. He was in the wilderness, it was 40 days, tempted by Satan, wild animals, angels attended to him, that's it. In in the Gospel of Luke or the Gospel of Matthew, you have all of the temptations spelled out, all three of them, and how Jesus responded, but not here in the Gospel of Mark. Remember last week I talked about the Gospel of Mark as like a highlight reel. It's like this boom, 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 here's all the things that happen. Mark doesn't have time to explain to you the whole thing. He just wants you to know right now that it happened. And here's what I want to point out. Here's Jesus, he's in the wilderness. We've been talking about this all night, this uncertain, uncomfortable place, this dangerous place that's unforgiving and that's not a place you wanna end up and yet here's Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days. And then it tells us this, that he is being tempted by Satan. And here's a fascinating and kind of interesting thing in the Gospel of Mark. This is the only time Satan comes up. This is the only time in the Gospel of Mark that Satan comes up. 
But here's what I want to observe to you. It is the only time Satan is named, but it is not the only time Satan is present. It's not the only time Satan is influencing the story. It's not the only time Satan is working. And so here's the thing we need to talk about tonight. We need to talk about Satan because Mark isn't making a mistake by putting it in the first chapter. What Mark wants us to understand is that Satan is present in the story and that he's working in all kinds of ways. And so I want to pause for a moment as we talk about the wilderness, as we talk about these seasons where we're tempted and uncertain and unsure and uncomfortable on how to move forward. I want to talk to you about your enemy in that season, the war that's happening in the wilderness. And that war is happening with this individual that the Bible calls Satan. Now let me say this for you because I think sometimes um, there's just so much unclarity and so much, like how do we work this? Here's just what I wanna say so clearly. I believe in God. I believe in God the Almighty. I believe in his Holy Spirit. I believe in his son, Jesus, the son of God, the Messiah, the living Christ. I believe in him. I believe based on what Jesus teaches that there are beings called angels and that there are beings called demons, and that they aren't gods in and of themselves. They are subservient to God. They're not humans. We don't become angels when we die. We don't become devils when we die. There are angels. There are demons. There are spiritual powers and principalities that wage war in this world, and just because we don't see them doesn't mean they're not real. Like, I just want to emphasize that to you because I think sometimes we live in the year 2020 and it just sounds so crazy to say you believe in something you can't see. But let me suggest to you that all the best things you say you believe in, you have never seen in your life. You've never seen love. You've never seen peace. You've never seen justice. You've never seen holiness. You've never seen joy. You've never seen any of those things. All you've seen is the manifestation of those things in life. And in the same way, you've never seen an angel, you've never seen a demon, and yet we see the manifestation of that all the time in this world. And so again, I've said this before, I'll say it again, you may think it's crazy to believe in a literal Satan, I think it is crazy to look around the world to see all of the hate, all of the evil, all of the injustice, all of the oppression, and all of the wickedness, and think, well, this happened randomly. It's crazy for me that you would think there is so much wickedness in this world and there's not a driving, animating force behind that. And what the scripture teaches is that there is. And that individual is called Satan. And and as we close tonight, I just want to linger on this reality for a second. It is the reality that Jesus faced in the wilderness. It is the reality that we must face squarely if we want to survive the wilderness and grow in the wilderness. And it is this reality of Satan, the devil, of angels, and of demons. And I want to talk about that for a moment in order to just kind of introduce and get our heads around the subject. uh, I want to point toward uh, a thinker that has brought clarity for my own life. Many of you know this uh, before, uh, and that is C.S. Lewis. Let me just read to you this quote from him. Um, He says this so well. Perhaps you've heard this before. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors in which our race, human beings, can fall about devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. So here's what I want to say to to C.S. Lewis's quote. If, if, If there's two errors we can make, one is basically you don't believe in devils and the other is you're obsessed with them all the time. Here's what I want to submit to everybody listening to the sound of my voice tonight. I think you are way more likely to make the first error than the second, okay? 
But like in our church, in our culture, in the Western world, in Southern California, I think you are far more likely to fall into just disbelieving and dismissing the idea of devils than you are to be obsessed with devils. And if I polled most of the Christians listening and you said, oh, do devils exist? You would sure, yes, I believe in the devil. I believe in demons. I believe in all of that. But here's the truth. I think for so many Christians in our church, in our community, in our country, in the West, what happens for us is we say, we believe in it, but we live as if it doesn't exist. And what I want to challenge you is to be the type of individual who recognizes the reality of spiritual warfare in your life, who recognizes that evil isn't just choices people make sometimes, but it is a spiritual principality and power in this world that actually exists. And I know there's some of you listening that are terrified that if we start talking about angels and demons, we'll become the second one who like has an unhealthy interest in them. But here's what I need you to know. I know hardly any Christians in our circles here who are that. You may be able to introduce me to those folks, and I don't want to meet them, okay? But, but I'm telling you that overall, I just think the temptation for us is to look at the world as it is rather than as the Bible describes it. To look at the world and just go with what we see rather than what we know is there biblically. And so I want to talk to you about spiritual warfare here for a moment. Uh, I want you to think deeply about this. Um, Jesus encounters Satan in the wilderness. And I want you to understand that that encounter with evil, that encounter with the spiritual dark forces in this world continues to happen. And it's not this crazy, wacky, wild thing. Uh, I want to put it to you this way, that Satan is going to attack you and he's going to do so in four ways. Satan will attack your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Remember Jesus said greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Jesus is going to command us that we would love in that kind of way, and Satan is going to attack those very things. And so let me put it to you this way. How does Satan attack these things? Here's what I would say. Um, The first way Satan attacks is deception, and deception is the battle for your mind. I need you to know, child of God, it all begins with your mind, that we are renewed, that we are transformed by the renewing of our mind, Paul says in Romans 12, that deception is when Satan lies to you, when Satan convinces you of things that aren't true, when Satan gets you to believe that you have no worth or you have no value or God would never love you or God doesn't want anything to do with you. You have nothing to offer the church. You have nothing to offer this world. Everything's going to fail. Things are never going to get better. Deception is this battle for your mind and Satan is constantly in a battle for your mind. And if you don't recognize that there is a war going on for your mind, you will lose that war every time. Deception, it's the battle for your mind. The second is discouragement. Discouragement is the battle for your heart. If you've ever just felt heavy about your life, heavy about the world. If you've ever just kind of come out of a moment and you're just kind of down and you can't even really explain it and you're going mentally, if you've ever said this mentally, I understand this isn't a big deal, but I just feel so heavy about it. That's what discouragement is. And what I want to try to point out to you is it's not just you having a bad day. It's not just you're kind of sad sometimes that there are moments where this is spiritual attack, where sometimes you're going to feel discouragement and your temptation is just to go, well, I'm just having a tough day. And what we need to do is recognize that there's a battle going on for your heart. There's a battle going on for your heart, for your affections, for that deep part of the you can't rationally explain, but you know is real within you. See, deception is the battle for your mind. Discouragement is the battle for your heart. Temptation is the battle for your strength, the battle for your flesh, 
the, the battle for your decisions and how you will wrestle with and how you will overcome sin. Temptation is t- Satan tempting you to do the thing that you know will violate God's law, that you will know will pull you away from holiness. It's the temptation to look at pornography. It's the temptation to dive into drinking and drugs. It's the temptation to lash out in anger. It's the temptation to lie or deceive or to cheat. Is the temptation um, to do something that would violate God's holy law. And, and believe me when I tell you, your struggle with sin is not just you and yourself. What we fight against is the world, we fight against the flesh, and we fight against the devil. And you need to understand there's a battle going on for your decisions. There's a battle going on for your holiness. There's a battle going on for your strength. It's not just you kind of hoping you'll do better today. There is a struggle going on. And then here's the final. Deception is the battle for your mind. Discouragement is the battle for your heart. Temptation is the battle for your strength. And accusation is the battle for your soul. Like you need to understand that of all of Satan's weapons against you in this war, his greatest weapon is the capacity to accuse you of unforgiven sin. That the greatest weapon that Satan has is the capacity to look at you and say you are a sinner. And if you are a sinner who has not put your faith and trust in Jesus, who died and rose again to forgive your sins, Satan has an accurate accusation. He has an accurate accusation before a holy God because you are a sinner who does not deserve God's grace. But if you are a child of God, God has forgiven you. He has washed you clean. He has called you his child. He has paid the debt that you owe. But Satan will still accuse you. Child of God who loves Jesus, Satan will still say, but you sinned last week. But you did that thing back in college. Back when you were in middle school, you said that thing. You did that thing. You had that addiction. You had that pattern. He will still accuse you. And this is his strategy. Like this is how Satan rolls. He he goes after every part of your being, your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. And he does it over and over and over again. And the tragedy is that there are Christians who have no idea it's happening to them because they claim to believe in Satan, but don't live as if he's actually existing in their lives. And tonight, If it's true that Jesus wrestles with Satan in the wilderness, Jesus is tempted by Satan in the wilderness, if it's true that Jesus deals with it in the midst of the wilderness, I want you to understand as a follower of Jesus, as someone who's looking to become like Jesus, how you fight back against Satan's attack. How do you win the battle? How do you win the war in the wilderness? How do you combat this? And here's my answer, four parts. Number one, You win the battle for your mind by knowing God's word. You win the battle for God's mind, your mind, where you know God's word, you know God's truth, and so you can reject the lies of the enemy. So when the enemy whispers that God would never forgive someone like you, you return with the idea that God says that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and I'm in Christ Jesus. When the enemy whispers that you have no capacity to do this, you whisper back to him. In Philippians chapter one, it says, I know the God who started this good work in me will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus, my Lord. When Satan says, God doesn't care about you, no one cares about you, you remember Isaiah 43, one that says, fear not, I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, you are mine. You allow the word of God to combat the lies of the enemy. And here's what I need you to know. This is like the first battle, and it likely is the most important battle. If you lose this battle for your mind, you will lose all the other battles. If you lose the battle for your mind, you'll lose the battle for your heart, your soul, and your strength. You'll lose it all. It's gotta begin with you knowing God's word. 
And for some of you, you will lose the battle because you just don't value it. And that's what God calls us toward. You win the battle for your mind by knowing God's word. You win the battle for your heart by experiencing God's presence. I need to be really clear on this because I am so emphasizing God's word and knowing and having it in your mind. But I need to be clear. Just knowing a bunch of things about God does not make you someone who loves God and can win this war. It doesn't make you someone who is able to walk by faith in the wilderness. You need to be someone who experiences God's presence. See, to be a Christian isn't just to know a bunch of information. It's to have your affections stirred by God's presence. That's true in worship. It's true in silence. It's true when you gather with God's people. There's something that happens with God's presence. And listen, I'm not just talking about the moments of worship where you feel like lifted up. Those are beautiful moments. But I'm talking about you just having a sense of God's presence with you. In the moments of church, in the moments of quiet time, in the moments where you're doing household chores, washing the dishes, making lunches for your kids, um, loving your spouse, caring for your roommates, driving in your car, in these moments where you can recognize God is closer to me than my very breath. That's how you win the battle for your heart. The people who overcome the heaviness of heart don't overcome by thinking their way out of the problem. They overcome by experiencing God's presence who says, I'm with you. I'll never leave you or forsake you. That's how you win the battle for your mind, the battle for your heart. You win the battle for your strength by the filling of God's spirit. Uh, Ephesians is gonna tell us that, that you won't gratify the desires of the flesh when you're filled with the Spirit of God. Be filled with the Spirit of God, it says, so you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. Like in other words, you defeating sin, you overcoming temptation is not you trying harder. It's not like I'll just try really hard and I won't fall into sin anymore. It's that you are so filled with God's spirit on a daily, on an hourly, on a moment-by-moment basis that there's no room for sin within you. This is what we're called to do. Being filled with God's spirit is something we should seek each and every day. We drop to our knees, we cry out to God. As we start our day, we just say, God, I need you to fill me. Like I wake up in the morning and I'm kind of cranky, and I'm kind of upset, and for me, I'm getting my son out of bed, and I've got him, and I'm waking up with my daughter, and I'm trying to start my day, and maybe you're holier than I am, but I wake up, and sometimes I'm cranky, and sometimes I don't desire God, and sometimes my heart isn't set on the things of the Lord, and I just need to call out to God in those moments and say, God, I need you to fill me with your spirit. Because if you don't fill me with your spirit, I'm gonna be tempted to be mad at people. I'm gonna be tempted to be short with people. I'm gonna be tempted to assume the worst about people. See, that's how we win the battle of temptation, the battle of our strength, by being filled with God's spirit. And finally, you win the battle for your soul by trusting in God's son. Child of God, I need you to know this. The devil is going to accuse you of sin. Satan and his demons are going to accuse you of being a rotten sinner who has fallen short of God's glory. And the way you respond to the devil, the way you respond to those accusations, that stinging guilt, that shame that sits upon you, is not to pretend you're not a sinner. You don't look at Satan and go, you say I'm a sinner, and I say, I'll do me, don't judge me. That is not how you respond to Satan. Here's how you respond to the accusation of the enemy. You respond to the accusation of the enemy by saying, I know I am a great sinner, and I know I have fallen short, but I know a great Savior, and his name is Jesus Christ, and where he goes, I will go also. I am clothed in his righteousness. I am washed by his blood, and nothing I ever do or say will change that. That is how you respond to the accusation of the enemy. That's our invitation. 
to trust in God's son fully and finally for our salvation. You know that Jesus didn't save you so that you could earn the rest of your salvation, right? He saved you then. He's saving you now. He will save you in the future. Your salvation, your soul rests entirely upon Jesus Christ, God's son and his finished work and not upon your effort at all. That's how you respond in the moments of shame. That's how you respond in the moments of guilt. In the moments where Satan brings up some sin you committed 15 years ago, you say, I know I'm a great sinner, but I have a great savior. In the moment where Satan reminds you that you just went to church and then went home and did the thing you promised you'd never do again, you go, I know I am a great sinner, but I have a great savior. This is what it means for us to trust our souls to God's son, to say that's what we're gonna do. See, there's a battle going on. And if you don't want to recognize you're in the battle, you will put yourself in a dangerous position. See, when we're in the wilderness, when we're in this place that we're wandering, when we're in this place where we're not sure what happens next and we feel uncomfortable and unsure and insecure and it's this unforgiving place, when we're in this place, we need to recognize that Satan is willing to strike. Satan and evil is willing to step into your life to tempt you, to destroy you. The scriptures say, Jesus tells us, he says, the thief comes to kill and to steal and destroy, but he says, I've come to give you life and life to the fullest. There's a war going on, and this is how you fight back. There's a war going on, and if you're not aware of it, if you're not thinking about it, if it's never on your mind, it will destroy you. Uh, like just for the last couple of weeks, really, maybe the last two months, there have been moments, and I just want to confess this honestly, there have been moments I've walked off this stage on Thursday night. And I've gone back into the green room and gotten rid of my pack and, and, and gotten all my stuff and just head to my car. And, and I just have this sinking feeling like I've just failed. And I have this sinking feeling like nobody is listening. And, and like, you know how mentally you know? Like I can look at the numbers. People are listening. People are hearing my voice. No one's listening. You failed. That you should just give up. You should quit preaching. Sometimes I just go home to my wife and I just go, I was terrible. This was awful. And it doesn't matter how many of you email me or text me or tell me that I did well. This was what was going on in my heart. And here's what you need to know. I would be a fool not to think that this was spiritual warfare in some way. I would be a fool just to think that this was just some kind of normal insecurity and to move along with my life. See, so, so here's what you need to understand. That those little moments in life, this wasn't some massive moment for me. This was a few Thursdays I walked off stage and felt insecure. But if I start going into this pattern where I feel that all the time, I need to start suspecting that if there's something I know, but it's not translating into my heart, and it seems to be knocking me off God's purpose and God's mission for my life, that there might be something at play that I just can't see. And I want to challenge you to think about that as you consider spiritual warfare. I want to challenge you to consider you that sometimes that discouragement you feel isn't just you feeling down on yourself. I want to challenge you that sometimes that temptation you feel isn't just because you're a weak person. It's because you're being tempted by something or someone. Like I want to speak to some of you who have tough relationships with a roommate or with a family member. Like some of you have a terrible relationship with your mom or you're going into Father's Day weekend and you've always had a difficult and rocky relationship with your dad. And listen, I'll never be the one to reduce everything to spiritual warfare, but I do want to suggest that if there's something that's just throwing off a relationship between you and anyone else, you can suspect that Satan is enjoying this. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, comes to destroy relationships. And it's not that you just cast off everything else and blame it on the devil. 
but it's that you're aware that our battle, Ephesians tells us, is not against flesh and blood. It's against the powers and the principalities of this world. We want to be people who have our eyes wide open to this reality in our own lives, in our family's lives, in our nation's life. Like if you look around our nation right now and you see some of the pain and some of the anguish, if you look around the world, if you look around the experience of people that you know and love and see the oppression and the hate and racism and you see all of that and you don't think it has anything to do with spiritual warfare, you've missed something. And you've missed something profound. What you need to understand as a Christian is that Jesus walks into the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry and immediately he encounters the evil one, the accuser, the devil, And I need you to understand, child of God who's following in the footsteps of Jesus, you will encounter that same power, that same enemy who will come up against you. And here's what I need you to know. As you think about spiritual warfare, as you consider the reality of angels ministering to you like Jesus did and Satan tempting you and all of these things going on, I need you to understand this, that walking by faith in the wilderness means being aware but not afraid. Like when you're in the wilderness, when you're thinking about temptation, when you're thinking about spiritual warfare, when you're thinking about the fact that it's not just this physical life we see, that there is a spiritual reality. Sometimes I say this to people and they start getting worried. They start getting afraid. They start freaking out and being worried and, and thinking about it all the time as if they should be overwhelmed. And here's what I want you to be. I want you to be the type of person who is aware but not afraid of it. Like, let me put it this way. Um, For many years here, I've gotten the opportunity to lead high school mission trips to Uganda. And and when we read mission trips to Uganda, it's actually true in a lot of different places we go. One of the things we have to coach students on from the very beginning um, is that every drop of water they drink on this trip, and some of you who have been on mission trips will know where I'm going, every drop of water needs to be from a bottle like needs to be from a sealed bottle, that we can't drink the water in Uganda because as Westerners and Americans, our body is just not prepared to receive the bacteria in that water. And it will cause us to be sick and it will cause us to become ill. And so we need to be very aware of the water we drink. And so we go and we train the team and we take them to Uganda or different places all around the world. And throughout the week, we're reminding them, hey, remember, bottled water, we don't want to drink the water. Even with your toothbrush, we don't want to do that. So what we're trying to do while we're there is to make them aware, but we're not trying to make them afraid. Like we're not trying to have them walk past the stream and be like, oh, like we're not trying to get them to be afraid of water. We're just trying to get them to be aware of the danger, aware of the reality. And here's what you need to know, child of God. Child of God, you need to be aware that your battle, your struggle, the greatest problems in your life will not be with flesh and blood. It's not gonna be with other people. It's gonna be the powers and the principalities, Satan and his demons, the reality of spiritual warfare in this world. You need to be aware that this is a factor in your life. And if you have been someone who has just walked totally unaware, you've not thought about it, you've not talked about it, it's never part of your discussions, it's never part of your prayers, I'm not here to shame you. I'm not here to tell you how bad you are. I'm here to tell you tonight that you need to be aware Because this is a part of your life. This is a part of your story. And there's a way we fight back. And it's by being aware of Satan. We are not unaware, the scriptures say, of Satan and his schemes. We're aware, but we're not afraid. And let me tell you why we're not afraid. Because Jesus tells us that greater is the one who is in you than the one that is in the world. There is someone, a being that lives inside of you who is greater than anything that could come against you. The scriptures say the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, that spirit lives inside your very bones. So you need to be aware of the spiritual forces of evil in this world. But you don't need to be afraid because greater is he that is in you than the one that is in the world. 
we're, we're gonna close now in, in a time of prayer and then we're gonna sing one last song tonight and, and obviously as we wrap up tonight, we'll be heading into next week and as we do, I, I wanna encourage you to pray. I wanna encourage you to come. I wanna encourage you to invite people who maybe haven't been um, to church ever before um, to say, hey, we have this opportunity to gather with us. Uh, I wanna encourage you toward that. I wanna encourage you as we make this transition to continue to be generous. Uh, I wanna encourage you to continue to give online. You can find that on the Calvary website. You can give generously as part of what it means to follow after Jesus, but more than anything here, is my hope for you as you proceed with this summer, that you would be deeply aware, deeply aware of what God is doing in this world, deeply aware of what following Jesus looks like, and deeply aware that the greatest realities in this world are the spiritual realities that are happening all around you, not to make you afraid or obsessive, but to make you aware, to make you attuned, and to be the type of person who knows how to win the battle for your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, so that you can become more like Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for tonight and thank you for your word. God, even now, I know there might be people just struggling to receive it, struggling to think about these realities. God, it's just hard for us to think about something that we can't see, to think about something we can't touch or taste or smell. It's hard for us. And yet, God, I just pray for the person who's resistant. I pray for the person who doesn't think this is a big deal. I pray for the person who thinks this is all silly that you would open their eyes, God, that you would speak your truth and that we would trust that this is true, not because we think it's true, but because you said it's true. So God, help us to be men and women who are aware, but not afraid of the realities of this world and help us overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. We pray this in the name of the resurrected Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And it's in his name, all God's people said.